Uh, Friday morning, I went to the upper room and uh, just spent, just went up there for 15 minutes to get prayer. And I have to say, they really uh, blessed my socks off with prayer. It's so awesome when you go up there, and even if it's for a few minutes, you always walk away blessed. But I did want to ask them uh, an important message to any of you who are in that upper room prayer ministry. Please stop praying for an end to the drought, because... Uh, <laughs> God has heard your prayers, and uh, uh, my wife's art studio's art studio has flooded twice. And God's done such a good job in ending the drought. So uh, this morning, though, we're in Acts chapter 23. If you want to turn there, <clears throat> earlier this month, um, there was a polarizing and provocative conservative. Jewish speaker who was supposed to speak at my alma mater, UC Berkeley. And uh, what started as a peaceful protest against him speaking turned into a riot with uh, rocks and bricks thrown, fires set, stores looted, uh, police barricades used as battering rams to breach this venue where he was due to speak. And uh, if it wasn't for a police escort to uh, take him out, uh, he really would have, the, the mob probably would have uh, caused some real harm to this individual. And really that's not a lot much different than what happened to another provocative and polarizing Jewish speaker uh, named the Apostle Paul <laughs> some 2,000 years ago. And wherever he turned up to speak, it seemed like there was some kind of an uproar. And at times uh, there were riots that started when Paul spoke. And so you have to ask yourself, what could have been so controversial to cause people to start rioting? And uh, to set the scene, I want to develop a little context. And that is, when Jesus left us and ascended to heaven, he gave his followers a mission. And that mission was to make disciples among every people group and every nation around the world to baptize them, his followers, and to teach them to observe his commands. And uh, once we finish uh, this, great, uh, this great mission, Jesus promised that he will return to rule and reign over the earth. Um, now, Paul was one of the first and the greatest missionaries to launch this worldwide movement, starting in the Mediterranean area. And uh, there are people uh, in this church now who are, th who are scattered throughout the world. As, as Jeff mentioned, our young people are in Guatemala. Uh, the Yamamotos are in Cambodia. Uh, the Ungerlands just returned from Thailand. They're sitting toward the back. And we have people in the Middle East, in, in all these various countries, bringing the light of the gospel to people uh, in all these different places. And it's, it's an exciting thing that we may be the generation that is at the finish line when this great mission is, is uh, accomplished. Well, this morning we find ourselves in Acts 23, as I mentioned, and Paul is at the end of his third missionary trip. It's about 57 AD, and uh, he wanted to come back to Jerusalem to share with his brothers and sisters, the Jewish people, one more time at the Feast of Pentecost. 
And when Paul went into the temple, uh, some Jews from Ephesus recognized him because he'd spent a lot of time in Ephesus. And uh, they charged that, they made this charge that Paul was against the law of Moses, that he was against the temple. They got people all riled up and, and uh, they were about, they were about to uh, cause a riot again. They were, these Ephesian Jews were calling for Paul's death. And uh, he probably would have been killed if a Roman garrison wasn't nearby, heard the uproar, raced to the scene, and rescued him. And as we learned last week, Paul... Uh, in this situation, got permission to speak to the crowd. And when he spoke to the crowd, he described how he had once persecuted these followers of Jesus. And uh, then he had this dramatic encounter with Jesus, the risen Christ on the Damascus Road that changed his life. But when Paul got to this part where he told them he had this mission to reach the Gentiles, then, and then this whole uproar ensued again. And the Romans had to grab him to protect him. And they had this prejudice against the Gentiles. They felt they were not worthy of God's favor or God's blessing. Well, after Paul revealed to the Roman commander that he was a Roman citizen himself, uh, Paul was granted this opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin, which is their version of the, their Supreme Court. So he, he had this audience with the chief priest, with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul generated more controversy when he told them, quote, I am on trial for speaking about our hope and the resurrection from the dead. Once again, the Romans had to take him out of there. And so we, when we open our scripture this morning, we're going to find Paul languishing in some Roman barracks, probably feeling a little downcast over all of this uh, opposition. Let me pray uh, before we open God's word. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts now. Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we read your word. Pray that these words would come alive to our hearts, that these living words would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we'll start in on verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell you. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them. 
because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with the warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported to me. So we see that this plot has formed against Paul and these 40 desperate men are waiting to take his life. Well, again, we have to ask, what could have ignited such, such hostility? Well, in addition to speaking about the Gentiles, the core of Paul's message was that Jesus of Nazareth, who the Jewish people mostly had rejected, had risen from the dead, and that he was the one who was their promised Messiah. And there's some interesting parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Paul that we can see here. Both of them were Jewish, of course. Both of them taught about God. Both of them were rejected by their own people. Both had murder plots formed against them. Both were questioned in front of the Sanhedrin. And both of them were held by the Romans at Fort Antonia. Now, Jesus had taught his followers that they would face opposition. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. And in John 15 and 16, John, uh, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He said, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So this is the predicament that Paul found himself in, and many Christians find themselves in around the world today. That if you stand up boldly for the name of Jesus, you may face some criticism. You may face rejection. You may face the loss of friendships. And in some places around the world, you may even lose your life. Now, Paul was not exempt from such opposition, and we are not exempt from such opposition. But one of the amazing things is that where the persecution is the greatest, uh, uh, in those places, usually the church is growing the fastest. And in Iran, Iran is a great example right now, and the underground church in Iran is one of the fastest places in the world where the church is growing. Now, you may face pressure within your own family to be silent about Jesus. You may not be able to talk about Jesus in your work. I know there are a set of grandparents in this church. Their children have warned them. If they talk about Jesus to their grandchildren, they will be cut off. Their children will not let them see their grandchildren. But here's Paul. He's not just facing a little criticism. He's facing these 40 desperate men who hate the gospel and will do anything to kill him. They, they actually think they will do God a favor if they 
put Paul to death, that it's their religious duty to kill him. Now, how did Paul deal with these kind of pressures? And how can we cope when we face opposition to our faith? Well, there are three things that I want to uh, bring up that I think were important for Paul and that can also be important for us. Number one, Paul lived with a clear conscience. That's something that Jeff mentioned uh, this morning and he also mentioned last week. In chapter 23, verse 1, Paul said, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Your conscience is that inner voice that God has placed in your heart that accuses or excuses your thoughts and actions. And the problem is that over time, your conscience can become numbed or incapacitated by sin. The Bible speaks of having a defiled conscience in Titus 1.15. It says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. The scripture also speaks of having a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4.2. It says, In later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And when a branding iron sears the flesh, the nerve endings are damaged such that that area of flesh becomes numb. And there's some of us who have become numb with our consciences, that they don't operate the way they used to operate. Uh, we no longer blush at the things we used to blush at. I remember uh, growing up as a kid, my parents wouldn't let me see James Bond movies because that was considered too racy. And uh, you know where we've gone since then. Um, some of our children, by the time they reach high school, have seen so much violence and so much dark occultic imagery and sexual content in films and on the internet that their minds have become darkened and their consciences have become numbed. Well, even worse uh, than a defiled conscience or a seared conscience, the Bible speaks of having an evil conscience. And people can become so distorted in their minds that they begin to call evil good and good evil. So how do we find our way back to having a good conscience? Well, uh, the scripture says that, that uh, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins to God, we turn away from our sins and begin to move toward him. Now that cleansing comes through the blood of Jesus shed for you on the cross. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering 
for he who promised is faithful. A second point that, hel that helped Paul to deal with opposition is that he stood on a firm foundation of truth. And the truth that was central for him was, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see Paul praying for resurrection power to propel his ministry. In Philippians 3, Paul said, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the hope of humanity, that death has lost its sting and that we will rise just as he rose. But I don't think resurrection power is just for when we die. I think there are situations we face in life where something, uh, for all intents and purposes, looks dead. And uh, we need God's resurrection power. Uh, you may have a dead marriage, and you are feeling somewhat hopeless about the condition of your marriage. Pray for God's resurrection power to bring new life into that marriage. Only God can bring new life into things that are dead. You may have a, a feel like your career is dead. You may feel uh, uh, like your, your uh, job prospects are dead. Pray for his resurrection power to bring that change. When I was 20, 29 years old, I read the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it was the chapter on the resurrection that was the most critical for me. As I was going through the book, I kind of surmised, at least I had this idea in my mind, that that was something that set Christianity apart. And uh, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that set him apart from other religious leaders like Buddha and Muhammad. And uh, the problem was I was a rationalist, uh, uh, very schooled in secular uh, thinking at my alma mater. And uh, I had been a follower of someone named Baba Ramdas. I felt there were many pathways to God. And uh, I wanted some solid proof. I didn't want to take a blind leap of faith into this Christianity thing. But as I examined the evidence and looked at the arguments that he, he presented in the book, both pro and con, for what happened to the body of Jesus, I was convinced that the resurrection was a, a historical event that occurred in time, space, reality. And when, that, when it fully hit me, the implications of that, I fell to my knees. I was alone in my little bachelor cave and uh, fell down on my knees confessed my sins, and asked Jesus to take control of my life as my Savior and Lord, and life changed after that. <laughs> yes, that's worthy of applause. <laughs> the third thing that helped Paul in his time of need resulted from these personal encounters that he had with the risen Christ. And these encounters uh, brought a promise that he could carry with him as a result, at the beginning of chapter 23, Paul was probably pretty discouraged as he sat in those barracks at night, probably feeling lonely and forsaken. 
And we see Jesus coming to him in verse 11 in his time of need saying, take courage, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. We don't know if Jesus appeared uh, as a vision or if this was a personal appearance, but Jesus came to him in such a way that it gave him a spiritual bear hug when he needed it the most. Paul, gave, uh, Paul received comfort uh, and assurance that God was with him. And it was a promise that he could take to the bank, that no matter what plans or plots or evil schemes were formed against him, that Paul was going to testify for God in Rome. On my website, God Reports, I, over the last couple of years, we've done a number of stories about personal appearances of Jesus to Muslims uh, in the Middle East. And there, there are these amazing stories about Jesus appearing in dreams, visions, and personal encounters with Muslims that change their lives. And there is a bit of a revival going on in the Middle East as a result. And even if you have not had that kind of dramatic personal encounter with Jesus, the Bible is full of promises for you, promises that you can take to the bank. And I'm just going to mention a couple this morning, and these are just from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40, 29 says, God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Isaiah 40, 41 those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorites. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is there anything that you are anxious about this morning? Well, don't you know that God takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? And how much more does he love you and want to take care of you as his child? I only brought up three promises from the scripture, but there, the Bible contains hundreds of promises. And there's a website called uh, 365promises.com and they give you a promise for every day of the year. <clears throat> promises that you can hold throughout, your, throughout the day. In the section of scripture related to the plot to kill Paul, we don't see God intervening directly with some kind of outright miracle, <clears throat> but we see him operating behind the scenes to make sure Paul is kept safe and makes it to Rome. <clears throat> How does this plot to kill Paul get discovered? Well, we find out that Paul has a sister living in Jerusalem. And her son, this young lad of perhaps the age of uh, Gabe Tackland, <laughs> somehow overhears these men plotting this assassination plot. <clears throat> now, we never knew Paul had a sister. We never knew he had a nephew. <clears throat> we don't know anything about his family. <clears throat> but by this gigantic coincidence, 
this young man we'll call Gabriel, <clears throat> is at the right place at the right time to uncover this assassination plot, this conspiracy. Now, how improbable is that? Well, once he hears about it, <laughs> Paul sends young Gabriel to the commander who gets very alarmed and arranges for this small army of 470 soldiers to escort Paul at night to Herod's palace, <clears throat> where he will soon meet with the governor. And when we see God's hand moving behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes using the arrangement of natural circumstances and people, instead of outright miracles, we call this God's providence. <clears throat> and uh, in God's providence, he can use good men and he can use evil men to accomplish what he wants to do. Throughout the Bible, we see God's providential care, <clears throat> preserving and protecting his people all through the pages of scripture. So what people might say is luck or coincidence or fate is really the providence of God. Someone has said, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he is behind. And he's moving those scenes in ways so that his plan will be victorious. When Christopher Columbus was sailing to the New World, he was on a course that would have taken him to what is now Virginia. <clears throat> and a flock of, seabird, a flock of birds flew over flying to the southwest. And because he had been at sea so long, his men were grumbling and complaining and growing mutinous, he decided to change his course and go further southwest. And he ended up hitting the West Indies instead of where Virginia is. <clears throat> now that course correction caused a major shift in world history and that the early American colonies were dominated by England instead of Spain. So here's a flock of birds changing world history. <laughs> with, with God's hand moving behind the scenes, little hinges can swing big doors. Now if the world operated just by random chance, it would be a scary place to be. You'd never know what bad thing might happen to your loved ones. In a world of pure chance, all you can really hope for is good luck. But in all these things that seem random to us or incomprehensible, God is working them out for his glory, for the return of his son, and for your good. So how do we cope when we face criticism, a rejection, or mocking, or ridicule when you stand up for your faith? Well, number one, make sure your conscience is clear that you don't have any unconfessed sin in your life. Stand on the truth of God's word and pray that his resurrection power will lift you up when you need it. And remember the promises given to you all through the pages of scripture and how he has sustained you through some tough times. 
Now, even if God is behind the scenes in ways that we cannot see, there is a promise that you can depend on. He has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And after Paul got to Rome, he wrote some of his greatest letters, letters that are filled with power, letters that are still changing hearts and lives around the world. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. And uh, if you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, this would be a great morning to follow Jesus. And even though it may appear gray and drizzly outside, Jesus is going to light a, a, a light in your heart that is going to change you forever. Uh, the first thing is to confess to God that you are a sinner. The scripture says all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are, are sinners. And then just to confess your need for him to come in and change your life. Uh, it means repenting, turn, turning away from your sins and moving toward God, saying, God, I want you to come in and change my life. You take control. So I'm going to pray right now, and you can follow along with me if you want to pray that prayer. Jesus, I confess that I have been a rebel and that I need you. Confess that I have sinned against you. And now I want to make it a U-turn in my life. I want uh, you to come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. I give up control of my life to you. Forgive my sins, Lord. Make me into the person that you want me to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>